At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 436th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who helps others understand how to plan their environments to work with nature. We're talking with Peter Bain about the world of permaculture. Peter has served the Permaculture Institute of North America, or PINA, as a director, board secretary, president, chair of the diploma program committee, application reviewer, and field advisor. In October 2018, he stepped off the board to take a part-time staff position as coordinator for the board. He holds diplomas in site design from PINA, in media and communications, and in education from Permaculture Institute USA, and from the Permaculture Academy of Britain. A founder, officer, site planner, and one-time resident of Earth Haven Eco Village in Western North Carolina, Peter has consulted for universities, intentional communities, religious orders, businesses, farmers, and residential landowners in much of the U.S. and Canada. He is an experienced builder of off-grid and solar energy systems and has implemented water catchment, cisterns, ponds, and waste treatment systems at a wide range of scales. Welcome to the show today, Peter. Are you ready to rock permaculture? Let's do it, Greg. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Oh, gosh. Well, it's been a long journey now in permaculture. I started in the late 80s. Really ran across the word not too many years after Molson and Holmgren released their first book in 1977. I think it was 82. Somebody waved a copy of Permaculture One in front of my face and it was like, huh, what's that? It took me another seven years before I got serious about it. And uh-huh. I took train when I lived out in the Hawaiian Islands. Got through the PDC and thought, wow, this is this is fantastic stuff. You know, it began to answer all the questions that I'd been formulating in my first years of adulthood and got on to trying to turn it into a livelihood and a career. So that's what I've done the last 30 years, roughly. It's taken me to many different parts of the United States and several parts of the world, far and wide, going to permaculture conferences. I've had the pleasure of working with a couple of thousand students at this point in classes, Mm -hmm. workshops, short courses, and I don't know, 100, 200 clients that I've consulted with, trying to design homes and properties, as the bio gave some hint about. And along the way, I've tried to steer my efforts to where they would also accomplish other larger purposes, like my involvement with Earth Haven Eco Village, was the idea of testing larger scale systems for settlement, which is much of what permaculture is about. We're looking at how people build and how they farm and how that has disrupted nature and caused lots of damage and distress for people and we know there are better ways and permaculture people are amongst the many in the world trying to figure them out. So I wanted to get my hand in some of that sort of work and I have. I've been able to. I think after doing uh, intentional community for a decade in North Carolina, it looked to me that the last part of my life needed to be more oriented to the mainstream. So we moved back to the Midwest. I'm a native Midwesterner, grew up in Illinois. My partner grew up in Michigan. We moved to Indiana and we spent a decade in the university town of Bloomington, where we taught at the university and where we had students and interns and created a mini farm and wrote a book about it, got into some interesting quarrels over that. Maybe we'll talk about that more later. Okay. And what? Then we're now in a different phase living up um, 
on 10 acres in West Michigan. Not quite the tundra, but definitely snow-covered right now. Uh-huh. And trying to figure out how to farm here and what else I can usefully do for the permaculture movement now that I've seen an awful lot of it. Wow, no kidding. So one of the things that I always like to ask longtime permaculturists is, is to define permaculture. Well, the Chinese have an elegant forward description, forever balanced natural method. Oh. But uh, that's ideographic, you know, mm-hmm. it would be like pictograms. I say to people that it's a way to shape our environment based on the principles of nature and what we learn from nature and to make human systems, settlements, and the way we do our cultivation and our business and our living harmonious with the natural world so that we can enhance it and enrich it. Then I tell my students that, you know, they have a job description, that if you're really going to do permaculture, to follow the ethics, which is because it's an ethical system, mm-hmm. you need to plant forests, build soil, store water, and save seed. And if you do those things, then you're doing permaculture work. Wow. So for me, when permaculture showed up, it, it was about 1991, and I have to this day, I still don't have any idea how this ended up in my mailbox. This was long before the internet and and email and that kind of stuff. And I went out to the mailbox today here at the Urban Farm, uh, or the day that the flyer arrived in 1991, I went out to the mailbox and I pulled this flyer out of the mailbox and I read about this course that somebody was giving. Tim Murphy was one of the teachers. And I'm when I share this story, I still get chills. Uh, And I I ran in the house and I said, Michelle, I was married at the time. I said, Michelle, we're going to take the, I'm going to take this course. Are you in? And she read it and we immediately signed up for it. And for me, the epiphany was, oh my gosh, this is the way I have always thought there's something to call it. Do you remember what that experience? I could, I could be, exactly. It's the same experience. Yeah. You know, virtually verbatim, I could be saying those things or did say those things in 1990. I was like, for me, the experience was, I was I was wandering around the big island of Hawaii, stopped at the natural food store in Naalehu, which is the southernmost town in the 50 states, saw a flyer on the bulletin board, clipped off the little thing with the phone number on it, said something <laughs> about permaculture, permaculture books, stuck it in my wallet, and didn't think anything else about it. You know, a few months roll by, it's my birthday in October. I pull it, I'm thinking, I need to do something different pull this number out, call it, went and met the guy in the parking lot of Long's Drugs <laughs> and bought a copy of Bill Mollison's Big Black Book, which uh-huh. had just been published, right. out of the back of his Isuzu pickup. You know, was like, and he said, oh, we're going to have, by the way, we're going to have these Australians come through in about three months to do a course. And I said, I'm interested. I want to do it. And it was like, yeah. And I persuaded my wife at the time to do it with me. And we went and it rained every day, but every, every day but three hours for two weeks. Uh-huh. We were up on the slopes of Mauna Loa uh, in Wood Valley at a Tibetan Buddhist temple, and, you know, it didn't matter. Like, yeah. cars and washing machines are washing out of the valley, and we're, like, in some altered state, 28 of us, mm-hmm. learning about, you know, natural systems adapted to human purposes. And I'm like, whoa. This is, in fact, fantastic. It's it's answering all the unanswered questions. Yeah. It's starting to put it in a system. It's given it a name and language and stories. It's compelling. And I said, I got to give this gift back. This is too great. So mm-hmm. that's what got me into teaching. Wow. I got to do more of this. More people need this experience. Yep. This is the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. Wow. So some people came from Australia to teach it. Who was it? Lindegar and Lee Harrison. Wow. Lee's actually a New Zealander. She was a science teacher and a uh-huh. really good one. Moved to Australia, became a cattle rancher, learned, met Bill Mollison. The two of them were in Bill Mollison's first course in Australia, and then they went on to, to teach, as he encouraged his students to do. Yeah. And they became a very formidable team, and they did a lot of international work. Max went on to become one of the three secretaries for the Global Eco Village Network. He was in charge of Australia and Oceania and Asia for a while until they branched further and got more people in. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I had the pleasure of studying with Max an Echo Village course in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I'm going to say 20 years ago. Uh-huh, yep. He did probably similar timing. He did one at the farm in Tennessee, which I also yeah. attended. Yeah. Really uh, talk about, you know, take your breath away. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was a wild 
That one lifted the lid off. I still see him standing in the classroom, waving his arms, explaining how you you clear your mind of a, of the clutter of a landscape. You just like sweep it all away. And Albert Bates runs in the hall and says, "Quick, everybody outside, get in the pickups. The tractor barn is on fire." Fifty of us went out and fought a, a wildfire. Just at that moment, it's like, okay, this is how you clear a landscape away, and then whoosh. Yeah. And I, you wow. know, anyway, it's been a source of great delight and some no small amount of excitement. Oh yeah, no kidding. To permaculture. So, and you've done a lot for the permaculture movement. Uh, you may be a little bit modest about this, but uh, I, I want to talk about some of that. Let's talk about your magazine. Yeah, so, I, um, just about the time I got wind of this course that I took in 1990, I got word about permaculture activist, which was being published by Guy Baldwin out of California, out of oh, the yes. Central Valley mm-hmm. at that point. And I uh, got some back issues, and I read the issue that he had just published then at the end of 1989. And it said, I'm, I've done this for two years on my own, and you know it's worthwhile, but I really want to be a garlic farmer, and I'm looking for someone to take over the magazine. And I had one of those moments when you just like, <gasps> you know, and I closed it, and I put it down. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, that zing went through. And then I went to the course a month later, and after, you know, we're closing the course out, and people are saying, well, where do you go from here? What are you going to do? And I told that story, and they said, oh, you're the one. You have to go. You have to go to tape. You have to meet Guy. Take over the magazine. It's clear that's your job. And I'm like, oh, jeez. So I did, and I then ran it for 25 years. And so I, we put out, I don't know how many, 50, 70, 70, some issues, 73, 75, something like that. And then I passed it on to uh, John Wages, who's changed the name, but not really this format, same purpose. Yeah, no exactly. Sign. So that was a great ticket to ride. I I went to several international convergences. I met every, lots and lots of people all over North America and the world who were doing interesting, fascinating things. And I got to learn about research, write, publish, review, all kinds of stuff. So that was my education. And it turned out to be kind of an okay little career, you know. Yeah. Well, and one that was pretty impactful. Thank you for that. There was, before the Internet, there were little magazines. Yeah. <laughs> right? And... Right, yeah. That's what we did. Yeah, excellent. Still there, you know. Yep. Still can pick them up and read them. Yeah, exactly. And I I have a bunch of those in my back files that I've read through before. So, uh, Pina, Permaculture Institute of North America. Um, I know our friend, our late friend Toby Hemingway was involved with it when when he was running around the planet. Tell us a little bit about Pina and what's the purpose of it? Well, there's just a little bit of an irony here. Pina... Permaculture Institute in North America was an organization founded actually out in, in the Maritime Northwest in Seattle back in the 80s, and it launched Permaculture Activist as its newsletter. Oh, wow. Five years on, you know, it closed its doors. The Then editor Guy Baldwin picked it up, carried the magazine forward, and then turned it over to me. And now, full circle, I've sort of retired from the magazine, which continues, but I've come to Pina. Now, this is a new organization with an old name. Mm-hmm. That is, the name up, but we refounded it in Oregon in 2012. And the purpose of Pina is everything in permaculture comes around in a spiral, you know, like right. we're doing the same kinds of things, but we're at, I hope, a higher level. And we're trying now to make permaculture more impactful on the mainstream of society. And the way we hope to do that, and what Pina's sort of running engine is, is to help people who are working in permaculture and who want to do more of it, make it more of a livelihood to become more effective as professionals and demonstrate excellence and capacity and to use those skills then and apply them to the urgent problems of our time, which are land repair and climate mitigation and social justice. Those have always been main objectives in permaculture. They're really why we do what we do, but the timing now has the historical moment is upon us. In some ways, the time we're in now and the next decade are the time that permaculture was invented for. For, yep. There are now, by my reasonable estimate, 50,000 graduates of the permaculture course, permaculture design course, in North America. Wow. Which means that, you know, just personally and privately, we have an economy of $2 billion. We have the equivalent of a city the size of um, Shakespeare's London or the Florence of the Quattrocento. Mm -hmm. It's culturally significant, but it's disconnected. Yeah. So 
Heine's purpose is to connect up as much of that city of graduates, as much of that community of ethical concern for the, the humanity and nature together, you know, to get to connect the parts of it to, with itself so that it becomes more powerful, more impactful, and able to do the work that is really on us all right now, to take leadership in doing climate repair and land repair and community repair, or regeneration, as I sometimes like to say. Yeah. So for now, what we're doing, we're issuing diplomas. We're running a diploma program, so people who have had the PDC, the Permaculture Design Course, can do the other bookend of the permaculture education system that Mollison always promised, but wasn't ultimately able to, able to deliver effectively. We have field advisors, we have regional affiliates, hubs around the continent, some places we're still working on setting them up that can administer this. Pine is taking care of people interested in taking what they learned in the permaculture course and becoming masterly at it you know, in some area, community development, mm -hmm. education, right design. We're working on a specialty in media and communication, something that you had to pioneer, that I had to pioneer. You know, like you just started this podcast, right? Yeah. And I've been figuring out how to get information to people and to make it acceptable and palatable and, and interesting and fun. Uh, fun. And I, you know, I had to learn how to publish a small magazine. Nobody was there to help me, but we'd like to make it easier for people now to do those and many other kinds of jobs. And that's kind of business. We're doing a bunch of things. You know, where we've got launched a design contest. We've got one running right now. We've had 42 entries. Wow. We're offering a $5,000 prize. It'll be awarded April 1st. We've got, you know, we're sorting through the entries right now and going to put up the five best or the ones we think are the best and most representative and let the membership vote on it. So if your members are, your listeners are graduates of the permaculture course, they're eligible to join PINA and have a look and make a vote and find out what we can do for them. Mm -hmm. So how do I become a member? Let's start there. Well, go to PINA.in, P-I-N-A.in, and it'll tell you how. You can click on membership at the top and it'll explain everything. Cool. $30 a year. You've had the permaculture course, you're eligible to join doesn't matter where you took it. If you live or work in North America and you have a permaculture design certificate, then we will take you as a member and invite you to benefits. There's a newsletter. There's a calendar. There's opportunities to participate in things. We'll do another contest next year, another design award, another cash prize. Mm -hmm. We're developing partnerships, and our partners are offering benefits to our members. But really, we're, we're looking to put people to work. Our larger aim is to put permaculture graduates to work, to create more right livelihoods doing permaculture regeneration work. So I think yeah, people should look at what's going on in the world and consider voting with their dollars and their attention. Fine is a good project. Yeah, amen to that. So you mentioned right livelihood. Some of our listeners may not know what that is. Can you dig into that a little bit more? P.M. Schumacher coined the term uh, right livelihood. I think you wrote a little book called Good Work and Right Livelihood. It's uh, doing what you love and making it support you, helping it support you, um, working for your values and not just for dollars. So, and, you know, I've been privileged to do that in permaculture. Where I, I can work to support earth care and people care and fair share permaculture ethics and actually make sort of a living at it. I did that selling magazines. I did that teaching. I did that designing. Those aren't the only ways people can do it, but we need to be doing things that actually make a difference in a positive way for the world and aren't just the next greatest gadget or the next thing to know, spend dog, money on dog grooming service. I mean, no offense to dog groomers, people pay for that, but yeah. it's like, really, does that make the world profoundly a better place? Not in my view. Yeah. I mean, Maybe it makes the dogs happier. I don't know. You know <laughs> what I'm go. saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. There are things. Like, there are people putting up, putting community gardens into food deserts. That's the kind of work I think is right livelihood. I'd like to see them get paid to do that, mm -hmm. to be able to live it and not just have to do it as a, you know, a charity or a, you know, a hope or something. Um, we need a lot of work like that. We need to change our farming. We need to change... The way we build, we, you know, permaculture has been saying this for a long time. It's still true. Mm -hmm. We just haven't accomplished. We haven't got all the world fixed, you know. There's more people now and there's more problems. 
and we've got to lift our game a bit. So, yeah. right livelihood's got to be part of it because people can't be just doing it on the weekend. We need, you know, we need something like the equivalent of a, a contemporary CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps, which yep. is a program that FDR set up during the Great Depression to put people to work and also repair the country. That's what we need to do. That's, I think, my kind of highest hope for China is that we can help mobilize the permaculture community and put it to work and get it paid and get it doing the work that it knows how to do that almost nobody else really understands very well. We seem to have this fantastic edge of understanding, you know, and the knowledge we have is scattered here and there in academia and people are not actually working with it or, you know, sometimes it goes on in allied groups that have different names and we don't call it permaculture exactly, but it's very similar. But most of the world just doesn't even see it. And yet it's exactly what is needed to address the many problems we have, which are kind of all just different facets of kind of the same way of humans abusing the natural world and themselves in the process, degrading natural capital, de- degrading ecosystems, you know, harming people. Yeah. We could make our livings differently. We could build and manufacture and farm and plan and practice, uh, you know, and transport and all these things in, a di- in different ways. But it takes some thought, and that's where the, you know, the design element comes in, what right. permaculture brings to the conversation. So you, you mentioned natural capital. Uh, mm-hmm. the, let's talk about that. Kind of unpack that a little bit for me, would you? Well, you know, it's a good book, well worth reading by Paul Hawken and Amory and Hunter Lovins about natural capitalism in which they make the point that there are ways to prosper from working with nature. And I, you know, I don't accept everything in their framework. It's a little techno-optimistic. But still, natural capital is what made all the great fortunes. You know, it's like what the earth and nature and the sun offer us. Stored energy in the planet, everything from minerals to forests to soil, carbon to flowing clean water and clean air. We have degraded those resources in the process of building up private fortunes and the current economy. The future, if we have one, consists of applying our knowledge and capacities now to restore and regenerate natural capital. So the four things I said at the beginning of this podcast that I tell my students, plant forests, build soil, store water, save seed, and other forms of life. That's natural capital, and we have to do those, take those actions now in everything we do. So instead, it's this sort of like, have your cake and eat it too? Well, you've got to, like, bake the cake. Right. And then you eat it. You've got to build the soil before the garden will grow. You can't be comfortable unless you're in a safe environment, and part of that safety consists of having trees around you, you know, in the right circumstances. Too many trees, combustible in your Western environments is a challenge, but you still need forests because they regulate the water flow and hold the snowpack and make it possible to live throughout the year. So that safety and security comes out of the forests. And if we're cutting them down and not regenerating them, if we're replacing them with plantations, that doesn't work the same way. We lose natural communities. We don't get all the benefits. And it sounds, you know, oh, well, that's a good thing. Who wouldn't argue? for that, but we actually urgently need to do that because we've put all the carbon that used to be in those forests and in those prairie soils up in the atmosphere where it's killing us or it's going to kill us. So there's a way to reverse that. We know what it is. We have many ways to reverse it. We need to do it. Mm -hmm. Political will, and we need people who are skilled, and we need to mobilize all this. It's a huge undertaking, and that's the great exciting adventure of the 21st century. And I think that's the great exciting adventure of permaculture too, because it, it, in many ways, it's it's one of the big solutions to our dilemma. Yes, I mean, I don't really care what we call it. I happen right. to be invested a little in this name, but if you want to call it, you know, regenerating natural capital or the triple bottom line, or you know, you pick your term or your brand, it doesn't matter. It only matters that we do it. That work is regenerating the earth and humanity, and that means changing values. It means like we all have to do some inspection and mm-hmm. some reflect. And are we doing the right, you know, the highest thing that our life is for? You know, what are you here on planet Earth for? Are you taking up oxygen? Do we need you? Are you doing something? Are you giving back? Those are my questions to my yeah. students. 
people I meet. I hope I am. I hope all of us can be. And, and I know it's not the easiest thing. If you're starving, you've got to have food first. But once you're fed and housed, and most people in the United States are okay, you know, they might be on a financial edge, but they're fed and housed. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with your time? You know, you, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with the, your intention to make the world a better place? Nice. So I want to dig into Pina a little bit more, but let's step back from it and talk about a PDC. Can you give us a, a one-minute description of what a PDC is so that people that haven't taken one can see their way into this into this wonderful yes. valley, we'll call it? Yes, the, the, the PDC, the Permaculture Design Course, is taught over 12 days, 14 days, two weeks. Sometimes it's done on weekends. It's a beginning module for what is seen as an apprenticeship to the natural world and holistic thinking. And you spend that time intensively with other students, usually 15 to 25 or 30, sometimes a little bigger group, sometimes a little smaller group, and ideally several teachers on a team who are kind of tag-teaming and presenting a range of basic science, applied science, ethics, understanding of holistic problem-solving, and then the theory is put into action in the course through a project where small teams are given an actual assignment to figure out how to solve the problems of a given system, whether that's the animal feeding system or a community garden or a retrofit of a house or a whole property design or maybe something really ambitious like how can we repurpose this this emptying out village over here and what would that look like and how would more people come and how would we get business in here again and so on and so forth all those are different possible applications and at the end the the people who complete the course who sit through it there's no grading there's just you have to be there learning with other people and participate, get a certificate, and that is essentially a ticket and a touchstone. The ticket is you now are a member of the permaculture community. You can use that word when you apply yourself in the pursuit of a livelihood. You can call yourself a permaculture consultant or trainee or you know, however the terminology works for you and work toward professionalism or work toward accomplishment, you know, mastery of something so that you can be useful to people. It's a whole, it's a little microcosm of all the practical distillations of science and its applications in the world. And some of that science is traditional knowledge from native peoples and from our ancestors. And some of it is modern science tested by people in laboratories with instruments but it's all used to the same purpose, which is to improve the quality of human life and the harmony of human life interacting with the rest of the natural world. And you get this, like, something to put in your pocket, your mental pocket. Mm-hmm. Okay, I understand what a forest does. I now know how soil is actually built. That doesn't mean, you, you know, you're gonna, your garden is going to succeed just because you got a certificate. It means you know that soil is built from the top down and it's full of life, and that's what matters. And it's the minerals that count. So, and you've got to stop erosion. So now I just gave you the whole lesson on soil in a thumbnail. It's like that. It's a thumbnail of thumbnails. You get the most essential information that any human being needs to live on planet Earth today. And you didn't get it from your parents unless you were extraordinarily lucky. And you didn't get it in the public schools, although they dropped little hints of it, like crumbs in the forest. But permaculture puts it together so that it suddenly makes sense and you can work with it. You can do things with it. And then coming out of the course, then it's a ticket to go and continue your, your own self-education, self-improvement, to work with others, to get on track. For me, that was one of the big key pieces when I did my permaculture design course back in 91 that... It, it set me on this track of lifelong learning because I was so engaged with yes. this new possibility that, that I had seen. Yeah. And it's a grassroots education movement. It's yes. Like each one, each one. Like my teachers had some experience in teaching and design and they bought a bunch of us. And then some of us went on to go on and teach. You know, I was in a course with John Valenzuela. He was in my PDC. He's been teaching up and down the coast of California and the islands ever since. So, 
you know, this changed lives. It wasn't the, I wasn't the only one. I was no fluke. In fact, everybody got reoriented, it seemed like. Yeah. But all did tremendous things. That's how it was, and it still is. You know, the people who come through my classes wind up going on to do amazing things. They write books, they teach courses, they you know, win awards, they, you know, give speeches. I don't know what you do. They grow farms, they raise families, they do all kinds of Work work with nature. I I often have said that my forehead was sore throughout my entire design course because it was like, wow, I'd smack myself in the head saying, wow, this is it for me anyways. Yeah. So now we have our PDC certificate and how do we interact with Pina? Like what's what's our pathways in? That's the basic thing. Go to Pina.in and join. Become a member. Give Mm -hmm. us your 30 bucks and sign up and you know, then look at whether you want to do a diploma, and if so, we can help you. And if not, then stay tuned because we're developing all kinds of other ways for people to interact. There's more education to take, and there's also opportunities. We intend within the next year to get some sort of first pioneer project on the ground doing regeneration work, and I know we're not the only ones in that field trying to create forward momentum, but Mm -hmm. we're definitely committed to it. And the people we favor in running those projects are going to be our members, you know, because we have confidence that they'll know more than your average Joe on the street yeah. about how to do this connecting work, this repair work. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of my, my things is I'm, I'm a connector. I love this, the way I do the podcast. And a friend of mine uh, said years ago, I never met a microphone I didn't like. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what kinds of diplomas do you have? Well, we offer a diploma in education. These are all permaculture professional diplomas. Mm-hmm. It's the equivalent, I think, of a two-year college degree in terms of the amount of study and work that goes into it. However, instead of being within the walls of an institution and following a set curriculum, people write their own action learning plan and then go out and fulfill it. Uh-huh. They get help and guidance from an advisor, a field advisor we call them, to lay it out in a way that makes sense, to find the right mentors, to choose the right you know, step. But it's essentially independent study. And, and it, it's expected that a good bit of it will be in paid work situations. Not that it has to be, but mm-hmm. you could be doing your job and getting the diploma credits at the same time. And then you just whatever it takes, two years, three years, whatever, you know, your pace, Two years is typically the minimum, but it could take longer. You have completed, you've filled out a portfolio. You've done this and you've written it up. You did a certain number of designs for other people, for yourself. You joined the team on teaching at PDC a number of times. You developed a curriculum. Those are all ways you would document your your work in a portfolio. You know, if you were doing community development, you would work with different groups. I worked with this group. I helped empower them to do this. You know, I took these farmers here, and I helped them figure out an information exchange, and we set up these things, and we did this. Or I, you know, helped create community gardens in this neighborhood, and we went from zero to 60, and we did this over the course of six months or a year. You would document all that in your portfolio, and then at the end, when your advisor and you agreed you were ready, we would call a review panel and look over and you would present your work and describe the things you had learned and done and how you'd met the requirements for the diploma and then you'd be granted the diploma. And that, in fact, sets you into a very elite group of people who have really applied themselves and become accomplished in permaculture. Yeah. And we've, we took people initially, Pina took people initially, who had already done that work but without the structure of the diploma program mm-hmm. and recognize it. What we did was rather than just lay hands on them, we said, all right, give us some basic documentation of what you did and we will acknowledge that. So someone like yourself with 20 years working in community development or all of your hundreds and of podcasts, you've, you've probably effectively completed the diploma in media, although we haven't written standard quite yet. I'm working on that one. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. No, it's in draft form right now with the committee. But we did that with education. We did that with site design. Those were the areas we knew more people had worked in. So we wanted to start there. But then we added site development and implementation for people who took designs and then built them out. 
on the ground or worked on one site over a number of years. I'm sure you've heard of Jerome Ozentowski's Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute. Oh, you yes. Even there. It's amazing, and I've watched it grow over you know, decades, and it's been there much longer than that. He's growing, you know, tropical fruit at 7,000 feet in the Rockies. Like, hello, you understand systems here that's just amazing. And it's not energy intensive. It's energy right. conservative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and hundreds of people. You know Eric Tainsmeyer's book with Dave Jackie, The oh, yeah. Edible Gardens. And he went on to write one on carbon farming. Yep. Eric Train up there at, at Crimpy, at, at Central Rocky Mountain. So did Mark Shepard. Mark Shepard wrote Restoration Agriculture, right? He's farming more than 100 acres in southwest Wisconsin in perennials. Like, so, you know, there's, like, sometimes you just, you just do, you build it and they come. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, you have to help communities lift them up. So the latest one, the latest specialization is in community development. And we think that has a lot of valuable opportunities for people in urban areas and working with communities of interest and communities of place. And now we're working on media and communications next. And we'll probably do another dozen different specializations. But it takes some time to think through what people need to do in order to demonstrate their chops, you know, to their exactly. bona fide. Yeah, exactly. You can't just say, oh, well, this, that, and the other. No, you got to really think it out. And you've got to talk to people who've actually done some simile of that work. Mm-hmm. And then come up with a measured way to assess that, and then set people loose on it and get them going. Perfect. So, so uh, Jerome was our episode one hundred and four back a couple right. of years ago, and uh, Eric Tonesmeyer was our episode one seventeen on carbon farming. Both of those were extraordinary yeah. episodes, and I bet. Uh, yeah. Bet. So yeah. well, that's a good indicator. You're tracking the right stuff. Yeah. And we're trying to do that in this way of you know, enhancing professionalism so that when somebody, you know, somebody is holding a diploma from Pina, you can say, oh, yeah, like, they know what they're doing. That's somebody I would like to work with. Those yeah. are people who get things done. Mm-hmm. Those people who really understand the way systems work. Cool. So before we travel on, I have one more thing I want to chat with you about, and that's your book, The Permaculture Handbook, Garden Farming for Town and Country. Tell us about that. Well, I did not, you know, I spent a lot of time writing as a magazine publisher of The Activist. I I would often have to fill up pages because I couldn't find authors necessarily. So I had lots of little tricks for that. You do reprints, and then sometimes you just have to write something. So I, you know, I learned to write back in college, and I got lots of practice as a publisher. And the writing came to be fairly easy, but I didn't think about doing a book. And then I was in a conference in the Detroit area in 2008 on peak oil, and a couple of gals from New Society came up and said, hey, could could we take you out to dinner? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, you know, and I went down the rabbit hole, and they said, we'd like you to write a book on permaculture. Well, yeah, and what else? And Well, you figure it out and make us a proposal, and we'd love to do work with you. Like, okay. So I wrote them a book because I felt they were doing worthwhile work, and they'd had a string of failed contracts, tried to get a permaculture author on the line and had things, one thing after another fall through. And I was like, oh, all right, I'll work with them. And then I was like, oh, you know what I need? We need, a, we need a textbook for the permaculture course in North America because we don't have one. We've got all this stuff from Australia. And we've got all this stuff from England and none of it's quite perfect for us. And so I'm going to write that book. And then I was like, where do I, where do I go with this? What, what is the mainstream center line? It's like, the bourbon homeowners with useless lawns <laughs> right, and dressed pocketbooks and schedules. Okay, so that's what the book is really trying to write and convey. Here's permaculture. Here's permaculture in an American idiom. Here's what it looks like in your backyard, in your neighborhood. Here's how to think about it systematically. And so I wrote a history of sustainable agriculture, regeneration, holistic systems, you know, What's the, the hopscotch to get you through how we got here to the, to the 2010s? You know, what, what was the recent history of this in the 20th and 21st century? Why should you consider doing this? I wrote it. The second chapter is, who am I to farm? You know, who mm-hmm. am I to farm? Yeah. One in 300 Americans is a full-time farmer. 
well, it's never been like that in any other society in history, and that's an anomaly, and it's going to change. And the 53 million new farmers that Richard Heinberg says we need are you, and you, and you, and you. And here's how you need to get into it. And you don't have to do it all at once, and you don't have to you know, quit your day job, but this is a guide, a pathway to get there, and how to cut down your cost of living and have more satisfaction and be more useful and productive and engage your neighbors and turn your landscape into a, an edible paradise at the same time. So I wrote, I, because I'm a fan of, of Christopher Alexander and his work on patterns, pattern language, I wrote a pattern language for the small suburban farm, what it would look like and how it would fit in with its environment and what you need or the organs and elements of that kind of a system. Mm-hmm. A root cellar, and you need a pantry, and you need some animal housing, and you need hedgerows. Uh, you need to crop in the alley, so you do alley cropping. That's in parentheses. Yep. Grow your fruit with your neighbors. You need to sort out neighbors and strangers. You need a fruit stand out front and a sign, and <laughs> you need an inventory, a resource inventory, and you have to work with salvage materials, and you need to poultry and tractors and run them around your landscape so they'll improve your soil and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things which is a little like home economics you know yep if i called it home economics people would have said ho hum right but i'm calling it garden farming and it's really kind of the same thing because you, you like need your home system to be productive right for you and for the world and this is a it's possible to do and it's actually a lot of fun Nice. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. All right. Well, I I would say uh, my most recent large failure was I think I failed to transform the political and legal infrastructure of Monroe County, Indiana. I wanted it to be live up to its claims to be friendly and supportive of small farms and sustainable agriculture. So I created one, and uh, that apparently offended enough people that they worked really hard to shut me down. So that was a failure because I wasn't able to change the regulatory environment Mm -hmm. or the legal frameworks. I made lots of friends and allies. I changed practice. We built our... we went from a neighborhood of 54 households that had one orchard and no other evidence of agriculture. Mind you, it was zoned for, for housing and farming. And you, and you still farming. got a fight out of them with that zoning. I still got a fight out of them. And by the time we were done, though, not only had we got front yard rabbits and chickens in three places and two new beekeepers and solar panels on three more roofs and you know, a a farm guy who actually got cattle and ran them (laughs) on his seven acres in the neighborhood. (laughs) You know, but we had shown hundreds of people what we were doing, you know, given tours and brought them through the property and trained a dozen apprentices who lived in and or lived out and worked with us daily and and also 300 students at the university got credit for learning permaculture. But... But it turns out that not everybody thought that was charming and lovely to have peaches and and cauliflowers in your front yard. (laughs) They thought it was ugly and a threat to property values. And so we we found a local wealthy terrorist, one who wanted to stalk us and wanted to Mm. uh, run us to ground and uh, turn us over to the authorities on any pretext he could figure out. So we spent about five years fighting a fight with county government, which had the disadvantage from our point of view of not knowing how to do what their job was, and uh-huh. then also a little on the lazy side, lazy-minded. Yeah. Just didn't get what they were trying to accomplish, and most people didn't challenge them about that, but what we were doing challenged them, and so that got their backs up. So in the end, they have the power, and we left town. You know, we sold the property, took something of a loss. Mm-hmm. Paid more than we paid for it, but not more than we put into it, and moved to Michigan from Indiana. Wow. So that was a failure, and I guess the recovery was I've built an exquisite solar home purpose-built to to farm from on 
10 acres with mixed woods and open ground, and my partner's out there shaking soil in the in this greenhouse that's attached to the house, putting up 10,000 seedlings for the spring garden right now. And we haven't had a fire all day, and the sun's been shining, and it's 72 degrees in wow. the house. Nice. That's 40 degrees north latitude and a foot of snow on the ground out there. So uh, that's uh, that's one way we've recovered. Mm-hmm. And I, the other thing is I've, I've lifted my game to start working with regions and groups across North America to try to really make bigger changes, including changes in policy and oh, law. Yeah, that's huge. That's definitely on our agenda in China. We mm-hmm. want to help people change all that, those ridiculous bylaws and silly old ordinances that are meant to take care of the banks and the insurance companies yep. and help them start taking care of people and their real needs. Yeah. There are yeah. H, there are homeowners associations here in the state of Arizona that dictate whether you can or cannot grow food in your yard, front or backyard. Or, or hang your clothes on a laundry line. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot stupider than that. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know. Those, those are the, that's the low-hanging fruit in terms of change. But believe me, the society is full of stupidities, mostly because we've all become addicted to to cheap energy. So what do you consider your biggest success? Oh, well, I have a, a, a proud roster of accomplishments, and you barely touched the surface of it. But I'm thrilled, thrilled to life that my daughter, now 28, it, uh, has become a small farmer and has trained in permaculture and is raising my grandsons in that kind of a framework. Beautiful. So that's, that's maybe my greatest success, or certainly the one closest to my heart. But as I said, I have thousands of students and I have taught all over the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, I, I could point to my permaculture family in Trinidad and Tobago and say they've gone on to teach in Belize and Guyana and Puerto Rico. And, you know, I didn't do that, but I, I gave them the blessing and the encouragement. And to get going, I planted those seeds. So yeah. that's a tremendous success. And I'm trying to help all those I've started in the world find the next parts of their pathways. If we can, I and my colleagues in Pinot, which is a big network at this Mm -hmm. point. Cool. And what drives you? Oh, I am unrepentant, you know, radical. I I see the falseness in the way we live, and I want it changed. I see injustice, and I can't stand it, driven by historical imperatives. My ancestors left oppression in Europe and hunger and starvation because of stupidity jealousy and greed and all those other kinds of things and came to the new world and no doubt committed our shares of mistakes but are here to try to make the world a better place i believe in the dream of america and that's not the american dream quote unquote that's like the, the way that this is a promise to the whole of humanity that we can live better on the on the earth mm-hmm. that's what i it is cool so here to honor my ancestors and um, help heal the world that's what drives me yeah so if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, you know, I'm going to jump outside the permaculture literature here. There's a lot of good books, and I already mentioned Christopher Alexander's Pattern Language, which if you haven't seen it, is a whole mind-blowing thing. But mm-hmm. I want to talk about what I just read that I think is very timely. It's a, it's a novel by David Guterson, D-U-T-E-R-S-O-N, called Snow on Cedars. And it's a tremendous exploration of small community against the backdrop of real of war and a lot of difficulties, immigration, racism, love. You know, it's a really beautiful, beautiful novel that it's set in the Pacific Northwest and it's set in a time after World War II. It's kind of a lost time. It's my time of youth and childhood, but mm-hmm. it's uh, grappling with what it meant for the United States to intern the Japanese, but not in a grandiose way. It meant, like, what did it mean for an island community in Puget Sound where wow. there were Japanese immigrants and mm-hmm. Germans and Scandinavians and, you know, people who fell in love with each other but then couldn't, you know, and what... But like any good piece of art, you can't just, you can't just describe it. I can say that I enjoyed immensely reading. It's also a murder mystery just in, on top of everything else. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's just a fantastic piece of storytelling with beautiful, beautiful language. So I would re- urge your readers to consider picking it up. You, can, you won't regret it at all. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. 
And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, don't assume things will continue the way they are. We're in a time of epic change. Mm -hmm. And it can go in a lot of different directions. So this this is time to get in and lean in the direction you want things to go. Because change is happening. And it can be good or it can be bad. So, but the main thing is to not assume. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean that things will instantly, you know, revolutionize where you are or around you or in your, even in your life. But if you don't assume that things will continue as they are, you'll question assumptions and you'll start to really align with core values and take the right steps. Mm-hmm. Take your right steps. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Peter. It's been my pleasure. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, we maintain the activist site still, permacultureactivist.net, which talks about my teaching, my courses coming up. Permaculturehandbook.com is about the book with some clips of video on stuff I've talked about. It might be interesting for people who want to see me and see my speech making and so forth, Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And then Pina can be found at Pina.in, which is a pretty simple address and easy yeah. number. And you can see what Pina's up to and learn about the contest and find out what's exciting to you in the permaculture movement. Perfect. And I really encourage you, if you do have a, a PDC certificate, permaculture design course certificate, go to Pina.in and join. I did. And... Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's really valuable. So we also want to thank Peter. He has given us three copies of his book, The Permaculture Handbook, Garden Farming for Town and Country. And we want to share them with you, our listening audience. Email us at podcast at urbanfarm.org with the subject line, I'm ready for permaculture. Make sure you provide us your name and mailing address. And we're going to pick three random emails from the first 50 people who respond. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Peter Bain. That's B-A-N-E. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.